I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, and welcome to Amicus. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate Supreme Court Correspondent. And on this issue of the show, we're having a special all-election law issue trying to unpack at least some of the voting problems you'll be hearing about between now and Tuesday. As you may have noticed, there's been a huge flurry of activity surrounding the new state voting laws in the weeks leading up to Election Day. And in a series of unexplained and inexplicable decisions, the Supreme Court just in the last few weeks blocked a voter ID law that would have gone into effect in Wisconsin, allowed new voting regulations in North Carolina and Ohio to go into effect, and reinstated a very controversial Texas voter ID law, a decision that led Ruth Bader Ginsburg to write a powerful dissent. She noted that up to 600,000 Texas voters may be disenfranchised and that there's a terrible threat to voter confidence when you mess with the election system. To help us sort all of this out, I am joined today by Richard Hassan. He teaches election law at UC Irvine Law School. He's the author of the book, The Voting Wars. He blogs at the Election Law Blog and is a regular contributor to Slate. Rick is the busiest man on the planet this time of year. So welcome to Amicus, Rick. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. So Rick, I think one thing listeners are probably wondering is where's the big bang in Supreme Court litigation over election law? Where does it start? And my theory is that it starts a little bit with Shelby County, where the Supreme Court strikes down a portion of the Voting Rights Act. But actually, it starts kind of before that with Crawford, where the Supreme Court upholds a voter ID law. But actually, it starts even before that in 2000 with Bush v. Gore. So help us unpack what changed in that 2000 election that made election law the booming industry it is for young lawyers today. Yeah, uh, I think that uh, what we saw in, and it's not just the case of Bush versus Gore, there are actually dozens of lawsuits that were filed. And what it revealed is not only that there were um, problems with voting technology, older listeners will remember the hanging chads and all of these um, punch card ballots where it was hard to tell how somebody voted. There were all those kinds of problems. But there are also holes in the law. It wasn't clear how long there was to uh, have a recount. Uh, it wasn't clear who decides what the rules should be, and it wasn't clear uh, how and who in the judiciary would be resolving these kinds of problems. And in the wake of that, you saw all kinds of creative things done by uh, secretaries of state, election lawyers, and state legislatures to try to change the rules in ways that might help in the future. So, for example, one of the things that we saw was that there was a kind of inconsistent treatment of counting absentee ballots and military ballots. And so some states made it easier to count military ballots. The military uh, votes tend to be more likely to go for Republicans. So if you make it easier to count those ballots, you may give Republicans an advantage. And so there were all different kinds of changes that were made in response to, I think, the general understanding that election rules are not necessarily neutral in their outcomes and that in a very close election, you can manipulate the rules that could potentially give your side an advantage in either 
of the election or in a potential recount or contest that might come after the election. So, so opportunities at the front end to change the rules and then opportunities to litigate everything, whether it's voting machines or voter intimidation or whatever happened at the back end. So this question of uncertainty rises after Bush v. Gore and everybody says, let's capitalize on the uncertainty. Yeah. And on top of that, because Bush versus Gore revealed all of these problems, like the problems with the machines, we had new legislation. So if you have new voting technology, you have to have new rules for how to do recounts and things like that. When these new rules were passed, including a federal statute called the Help America Vote Act, which says everybody's entitled to get a provisional ballot if their name's not on the uh, voter rolls or there's some kind of problem. It doesn't mean the ballot has to be counted. New rules, new opportunity for litigation, and new uncertainty because, you know, write a statute and give it to a lawyer and she'll find an ambiguity. So young lawyers, if you're listening in your car run out and find an ambiguity in an election law, and someday you can grow up to be as miserable as we are. Um, I wonder if you would turn to this question of vote fraud for a minute, because you've been writing about this for such a long time, and you've been kind of uh, a leader in this conversation about this idea of vote fraud. And, you know, I think that that we're in a weird war of infinitesimal fractions when we talk about the the voter ID problem, because on the one hand, you know, people like you and I say, what, there were two instances of vote fraud in Texas, you know, that, that warrant disenfranchising hundreds and thousands of people. Um, you know, on the other hand, I, I'm reading Rich Lowry writing in Politico that the number of people who are actually turned away from the polls uh, because they don't have proper ID is similarly tiny and fractional. And so, what you know, I, I, I we can debate whether his math is right, but isn't part of the problem here that people hearing about these efforts to disenfranchise them, period, uh, or hearing that there is this massive wave of voters coming in on buses from other countries and voting in our uh, election systems, doesn't the entire thing diminish voter confidence? Well, I don't know if it does, and I think that it's it's hard to say, but let's back up. First of all, in terms of what, how much fraud there is, we have to differentiate between uh, impersonation fraud. I go to the polls and I say I'm Dahlia Lithwick. Um, nobody's going to buy that. It would be a kind of a crazy way to steal an election because you'd have to find enough people to go to the polling places, figure out who's not going to be there, who's going to be impersonated, and then you can't verify how the person voted. That's why, uh, you know, for my book, I tried, I went back all the way to 1980 to try and find a single election where the election might have been called into question by this kind of fraud. And I couldn't find uh, an example of that. So that kind of fraud doesn't happen uh, on any kind of systematic scale. There are just these isolated cases, as you mentioned. There are other kinds of fraud that are more serious. For example, absentee ballot fraud. Uh, if you get an absentee ballot and I can give you 20 bucks for you to give me your blank ballot and then I can vote it for you, well, that's a way that we see people trying to manipulate election outcomes. Doesn't happen all the time, doesn't happen a lot, but it happens enough that it's a real problem. But it's not a problem that's generally been targeted by people who have been passing these voting laws, in, in part, I think, because absentee balloting is something that Republicans have tended to use. Uh, so it's kind of a cost-benefit involved in deciding what fraud uh, to go after. On the other side of the ledger, in terms of turnout and, and affecting turnout and affecting public confidence, if you lack the ID in Texas, uh, why would you bother going to the polling place to cast a vote that you know 
is not going to count. So we can't just look at the number of people turned away to figure out how much of a problem this is. And I do think early on that um, the plaintiffs suing had trouble finding a lot of people who, one, lacked the ID, two, couldn't reasonably uh, easily get the ID, and three, wanted to vote. But as these laws have gotten tougher and tougher, it's become easier to find these kinds of plaintiffs. And so uh, while uh, Ethan Bronner of the New York Times once characterized this fight as two bald men fighting over a comb, uh, I think now there's a little bit more evidence of the suppressive effect of these laws, at least in the states with more serious, uh, stricter ID laws, and a little bit of um, a, a confirmation that the voter fraud problem in terms of impersonation is a, is a phantom problem, is something that is ginned up to try and get people excited about uh, voter fraud. Do you have any reason to believe, I, I'm just interested in this voter confidence question, because, you know, Justice Ginsburg makes it the heart of her dissent last week in the Texas uh, voter ID case. Uh, Justice Breyer has talked so much about voter confidence in the campaign finance context. And I guess I'm just continue to be curious about whether this is like a big Escher staircase where all this attention paid to whether it's one side claiming that the other side votes fraudulently or one side claiming that the votes are being systematically suppressed for racial reasons, that everybody's confidence that the system is fair has been kind of destroyed. I mean, it seems to me that we're having a conversation about how to promote voter confidence, right? And we're saying, oh, if people just have photo IDs, people will believe in the system. Or on the other side, if we just stop suppressing the vote, people will believe in the system. But isn't the damage already done? Don't people just believe that this system is hopelessly broken? Well, I don't know that there's good evidence that this is an enduring effect. That is, that we have a kind of a systematic decline in confidence. But what I can tell you is that when you have a close election and there's an election contest like Bush versus Gore or there was a contested race for governor of Washington State in, in 2004 between uh, Christine Gregoire and Dino Rossi or, or, or the Franken-Coleman-Minnesota-U.S. Senate uh, dispute, uh, which we had a few years ago. In each of those places, if you look at polling about voter confidence in the process, there's a pattern that emerges. If you're on the losing side, you tend to have very little confidence in the process. If you're on the winning side, you tend to have a lot of confidence. That is, if my guy won, the election was done fair and square. And if the other guy won, there must have been fraud or suppression or chicanery. And I, th I think that public opinion is fragile and that we're now primed to believe because of all of these headlines that come up around elections that that our elections are, are fraught with fraud and suppression, uh, when in fact, uh, I think you have a lot of people who are working very hard to, to keep our elections fair and to count the votes fairly. And it is a kind of a corrosive thing that, uh, you know, Google the words voter fraud, and uh, you will just be amazed at some of the things that you see. Do you have a sort of systemic Rick Hassan approved how we fix voting in America seven point plan that you'd like to share? Oh, I have a it's even shorter than a seven point plan, but it's a plan that I don't think I'll see enacted in my lifetime. I mean, I think what we need first of all are nonpartisan election administrators, people who have the view that their allegiance is to the integrity of the process and not to a political party. You know, in most states, the chief election officer of the state is an elected partisan official. 
I think we have to move to nonpartisan election administration. I think we have to nationalize a lot of our election processes, which Congress has the power to do under the elections clause for federal elections. I'd like to see us move to universal voter registration conducted by the federal government, where the federal government goes out and registers every eligible voter who wants to be registered and gets all of the underlying documents to prove citizenship and prove residency and, and, and prove eligibility to vote. And then give everyone a national voter ID card, uh, which they could use for voting. And wh whoever wants can give a thumbprint. And if you don't want to bring your card or you lose your card, you won't lose your thumb. <laughs> so I like to say that this is a proposal that has united Democrats and Republicans. Unfortunately, it's united them against the plan. Democrats hate any kind of voter ID <laughs> law. Republicans hate any kind of nationalization of elections, you know, giving more power to the federal government here. And they hate universal voter registration, which would take away the, the, the problem of, of casual voters not being registered and, and ready to vote. But I think, you know, if we, we look at how other countries do it, we're, we're well behind the curve. We don't put enough resources into our elections. We don't use nonpartisans. We don't do this on a national basis. That's what we need to do, but that's not what's going to happen. What I expect is going to happen is that the Supreme Court's likely going to give uh, a green light to uh, these new tougher voting restrictions. And we're going to see more states with red state election law and blue state election law. And in those red states, it's going to be harder to register and to vote than it will be in the blue states. And can you circle back for the folks listening who want to know what cases to watch in the future and tell us what's coming down the pike that's interesting that might raise issues we haven't talked about yet today? Sure. Well, let me just highlight one other case. And uh, this is a case, kind of a sleeper case, but it has tremendous potential implications. So uh, in 1993, Congress passed a law called the National Voter Registration Act, which is sometimes called the Motor Voter Law, which does a number of things like requiring state motor vehicle departments to offer voter registration uh, uh, capabilities. But one of the things it does is it says that the federal government will provide a very easy form for anyone in the country to register for congressional elections. doesn't matter where you are, you've got to use the federal form. And, and Congress has the power under the Elections Clause to, to require this form. At least that, that's how we've been thinking about it. Well, um, Chris Kobach, who's the Secretary of State of Kansas, uh, a very much a conservative on these issues of voter fraud, has fought against this. And he, what he doesn't like about the federal postcard is that it doesn't require documentary proof of citizenship, uh, proof that you were born in the United States or naturalized and eligible to vote. And so there were some complications, but eventually he, uh, Kansas, and the state of Arizona sued the federal government and said, we don't want to use this postcard unless you require people to send in the citizenship information. And their theory is that although the um, Constitution gives Congress the power to set the manner of elections in the Elections Clause, it gives the states the power to decide who's qualified to vote, the qualifications of voters. And Kansas and Arizona's theory is this interferes with us deciding on voter qualifications. That case is currently pending before the Tenth Circuit, uh, and I'm not sure what's going to happen in that case. But the reason it's important is this. If the states win in this case. It means that many more restrictive laws that Congress might try to stop, Congress could, for example, pass a law that says you can't have a restrictive voter ID law. That might be beyond Congress's power if Kansas and Arizona win in this case, because the more that states have the power to set the qualifications for voters, the less Congress has the power to set the manner of elections. And so this is a sleeper case about whether the federal government or states have the ultimate power to decide what the rules are going to be for federal elections. And so it's one to watch in the next few years. 
And and if we could turn just for a moment to judicial elections, I think uh, I've certainly written a lot about, I know you and I wrote together about um, the commercials that are aired in judicial. Yes, for Halloween. For it's Halloween. Uh, we're, we're, it's that the, the, time it of the, year. The, they were scary, spooktacular. Spooktacular. Uh, advertising. Terrifying judges who want people to die, die, die. And we actually have an especially spooky example right here from this election cycle. This TV spot is from earlier this year in North Carolina, a judicial race where a Supreme Court justice named Robin Hudson is running for re-election to the bench. We want judges to protect us when child molesters sued to stop electronic monitoring of their locations a law that let us track child molesters near schools, playgrounds, daycare centers. Supreme Court Justice Robin Hudson sided with the predators. Hudson cited a child molester's right to privacy and took the side of the convicted molesters. Justice Robin Hudson, not tough on child molesters, not fair to victims. So that ad was paid for by a Washington-based PAC that has received hundreds of thousands of dollars from the Republican State Leadership Committee. And I think because we think about the law, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk for a few minutes about judicial elections, because one of the things that's going to happen this Tuesday raises these same questions of voter confidence. We have this paradox in America where we want to elect our judges, but we don't want to know that they're biased and partisan. And we find out they're biased and partisan when we spend millions and millions and millions of dollars on ads telling us they're biased and partisan. So do you have any thoughts about judicial elections going into this uh, this November contest? Well, you know, when it comes to judicial elections, we tend to see the big spending in, in states where control of the judiciary might depend on it. So if there's a Democratic majority and it could be flipped Republican or Republican majority could be flipped Democrat, we, we tend to see money coming into those contests. Uh, you know, Justice O'Connor has expressed regret at her vote in a, a Supreme Court case called Republican Party of Minnesota versus White about whether we could have different rules for judicial elections. And there was an opportunity in the Citizens United case, the Supreme Court case, which freed up uh, corporate money and other money in elections to to create different rules for judicial elections to make it more restrictive, and the hope was that Justice Kennedy, who cares about the integrity of the judiciary, would would have allowed that. But I think that was really the turning point. If we could put meaningful limits on money in judicial elections in order to preserve the actuality and appearance of the impartiality of the judiciary, we'd be in much better shape uh, than we're in today. And uh, it's just unfortunate. And the idea that we're going to somehow eliminate judicial elections because they're too distasteful. That doesn't seem to be panning out. The big effort to try and do that in Nevada did not work. And uh, I think we're going to have judicial elections in many of our states for many years to come. And they will get grosser and grosser, I'm guessing, with more and more money poured in. And of course, it's often outside money that's coming in, because now you have all different kinds of players who are not just political parties and candidates who want to make an impact on these elections. And, you know, if you have big business interests, you're, uh, you know, a big corporation or, or, or you're the, the trial lawyers in a, in a state, you really care about that state Supreme Court. And so it becomes another target for fighting over uh, who's going to have control over an important part of the political process. I think it was the great uh, John Grisham who once wrote a novel suggesting that if you wanted to buy a seat, a judicial Supreme Court seat is a really cheap and effective way to start. Yeah, I don't know that it's cheap anymore, but... uh, (laughs) Yay! Cheaper than other things, but you know. Some good news. 
Yeah. Well, I want to thank you uh, for coming in. I know you're super busy this week, but I want to thank you for uh, helping shed at least uh, light on a conversation that seems to have an awful lot of heat in the weeks before an election. Not a lot of light, but a lot of heat, yes. <laughs> uh, Richard Hassan uh, teaches election law at UC Irvine Law School. He is author of The Voting Wars and is uh, the founder of the election law blog, which really has become an indispensable site for breaking election news. Rick Hassan, thank you very, very much for joining us here on Amicus. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this all-election episode of Slate's Amicus podcast. If you like this show, there are two great things you could do to help us spread the word. First, please subscribe in iTunes and leave us a comment. Just search for Amicus in the iTunes store or find us at slate.com slash podcasts. Second, just tell your friends to check us out. Please let us know more of what you think of the show and what you'd like to hear more of or less of by writing us at amicus at slate.com. That's amicus at slate.com. We are loving your letters. We are loving your support. Thanks to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped. Our producer is Tony Field. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. Next week is a big oral argument week at the Supreme Court, and we will bring you some sound from the inside. We'll be back with you soon for the next edition of Amicus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.